0: You're listening to Full Metal Podcast, a hard defense podcast brought to you by the defense team at the Center for a New American Security.
1: Hi, and welcome. I'm Susanna Bloom, and you're listening to Full Metal Podcast from Center for a New American Security. Today, I'm
0: here with... Jerry Hendricks. Adam Ruth.
1: Lauren Fish. Uh, and later in the episode, we'll be talking about military readiness with Laura Jr who is currently at NDU, but was formerly the Principal Deputy Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness at DOD, and Lacey Raymond, who worked on readiness issues on the personal staff of the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, But first, we're gonna have a roundtable discussion here about some uh, items out of the newspapers. Uh, First, uh, personnel shakeups at the White House, and then the omnibus that we finally got for FY fiscal year 2018, and finally, the White House's new space policy. So first off, uh, H.R. McMaster out as National Security Advisor, John Bolton coming in. How do we feel about that?
0: Well, you know, this has been sort of like the worst kept secret in Washington, D.C., that uh, there was going to be some sort of a transition with General McMaster departing. It looks like he's going to depart into retirement and not into a four-star position. There have been a lot of conversation going back and forth. And we also know that Ambassador Bolton has had an ongoing back-and-forth conversation with the president, and there seems to be a great deal of comfort uh, between the two of them, and that, in fact, Ambassador Bolton is aligned with the president on a number of issues, uh, given his, his uh, skepticism, the president's skepticism about the Iran deal, as well as the need to take a, a harder maximalist line against North Korea. So Bolton really does seem to be an expression of... Uh, the president's views on foreign policy. And in that sense, it's uh, it's, it's it's more of a natural uh, selection.
1: Well, I, on that note, I will say that, that Bolton's views on foreign policy are definitely not reflective of candidate Trump's views, right? I mean, John Bolton is, you know, you'd say many things about him, but one thing that's for sure true is that he's not an isolationist. And that was kind of the initial Foreign policy approach. to The president in the early days, you know, he's his views seem to be evolving. Um, but I, I would view it as a pretty significant departure. His selection of Bolton as national security advisor.
2: Yeah. So I think uh, I mean anybody who reads the headlines uh, can, can can rightfully say that there's a lot of skepticism. A lot of people are concerned about Bolton. A lot of people are gonna are wondering what he's going to do. What what can we Expect initially. What are people's thoughts on what we should expect in the near term as Bolton takes position? Rather than, um, uh, I guess, what are our prediction? What are our predictions? Rather,
0: well, I think the only thing that really matters right up front is this forthcoming summit, or, or uh, you know, with between the president and the leader of North Korea, and I think the idea of getting Bolton on. Uh, by April the 15th so that he is the one who's going to have the lead on preparing the president for this summit meeting. We won't have a new secretary of state yet. I'm not sure that uh, Secretary Pompeo would be in position. And so really it's going to be Bolton and, and the president formulating this summit meeting.
3: Well, there's also the JCPOA decision is coming up quickly soon after that in May. So there's a lot on tap to get someone new in place to help coordinate all the ducks uh, across the whole of government. I think there's an interesting point to make as um, an active duty officer leaves the White House. There was a lot of concern about that person being in position there, regardless of his merits. Um, I think the question is, will John Bolton be different? A lot of people think that a military officer will be more aggressive. I don't think that's always necessarily true on the military side. But are we going to have different points of view in the White House that are challenging Trump on some of his preconceived notions and bringing new information to bear? Or is it just going to be more of telling him that he's right?
1: So just for our audience, JCPOA is the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Uh I, you know, I, I will go, I have to go on the record as saying I am concerned about John Bolton as a national security advisor. I'm concerned about his positions on North Korea and Iran. And I'm also concerned about the fact that The New York Times has reported that Secretary Mattis is concerned that he won't be able to work with Bolton. Uh, And and that gives me great pause. Uh, But enough said about that, I think. Uh, I think let's move on to the omnibus. So six months into the fiscal year, we finally have an appropriation for 2018.
0: Things are happening. (laughs) Such a time for joyous celebration.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and so basically, you've got a Pentagon that has been spending money, what's, what they refer to as the burn rate. They've been spending money according to their President's Budget 18 request, and so they've, they're getting in this appropriation about $30 billion more than existed in that request. Uh, there are a lot of folks concerned about how the department is going to responsibly execute that influx of money in the remaining six months of the fiscal year. Uh, Congress has seen fit to give them a little bit of flexibility in terms of operations and maintenance spending, particularly, uh, you know, a bit of relief from what is known as the 80-20 rule, where 80% of your funding has to be obligated before the last quarter of the fiscal year um, and uh, and increase the threshold for uh, reprogramming actions. However, the department didn't get flexibility to carry over funding from one fiscal year into the next fiscal year, and and I think that's a shame. So definitely challenging road ahead for the department.
3: So what's interesting, I think, as well, is um, when the Hill gave this plus up, uh, Susanna and I saw Comptroller Norquist, who's been on a previous CNAS podcast last Friday, and on, on the record engagement, and he said the Hill basically got the Pentagon to some of their requests for the 19 plus up, where we see a much bigger request, so things, for example, the Super Hornet. The original 18 requests had 10 Super Hornets. This one, what the Hill does is bumps it up to the 24 that they requested in uh, fiscal year 19, so we might see some of those, you know, building up the military. Hit a little bit faster, um, which I think the department would welcome.
0: Well, one of the things that did bother me though was we're not we're, the money's coming in essentially into uh, O and M accounts and some of the readiness issues. That seems to be the uh, the priority. But some of the hard things, like how do we get from here to three hundred and fifty-five ships? We're not really seeing that game plan play out. We don't see that there's going to be something that's executable. Uh, within this sort of eighteen nineteen 19, uh, two-year plan that really allows us to, to really begin growing the force. So that, that's, uh, color me skeptical uh, about this. I know the burn rate issue will be there, but my main concern is acquisitions programs are not going to be there to really begin to scale up. Even with the Super Hornets, that's just trying to get Naval Aviation healthy again. That's not really trying to get ahead. It's just trying to get back to the baseline.
1: I mean, I'll, I'll point out that I think the spend for 18 and 19 is is still pretty strategic. You know, you have a new strategy that focuses on strategic competition with China and Russia. And what you see by and large in both the 18 and 19 plans is increased investment in, you know, legacy systems that are that are kind of already a bit out of date. Um, But anyway, at least we've got a budget now. So that is great news. (laughs) Progress. (laughs) Uh, Progress. And moving on to our last topic for today, White House has a new space policy.
2: Yeah, so the new National Space Strategy, uh, which came out last week, really isn't anything all that new if you've been paying attention to the Space Council meetings and what, what the White House has been advocating for, I guess, throughout the administration. Um, it's, it's, it's got emphasis on resiliency in space architecture, uh, deterrence and space as a warfighting domain, uh, to improve foundational capabilities, structures, and processes, and then foster a conducive environment for a national um, for both domestic and international environment. And I think what's interesting about the strategy is that it doesn't actually address any type of you know, American organizational or um, kind of reprioritization. Like, how do we think about NASA if commercial industry is doing more of these things? Do they also execute the same missions commercial industry is doing? Is there a new mission? How do we think about who's gonna take on the space situational awareness that is becoming increasingly important? Um, right now, those weren't addressed in the strategy, and I think that's a, a that's a... Shortfall,
0: But what was addressed in the strategy that I found uh, helpful is the essentially the great power competition issue there. The fact that the strategy uh, formally enunciates the fact that space is an area of military competition and that we have competitors that are operating there and beginning to expand there. I think that takes a very realistic approach on it, and, and I'm, I'm, I feel like that's getting us off on a good step in space.
2: Yeah, and I would say that the fact that the language in the strategy specifically states that that if something were to, if there were to be an act of aggression against our infrastructure in space, that we would have the right to decide when, where, how, and in what domain it specifically states that, how would we respond, so that obviously implies that we're not just thinking about anything that might happen in space being um, contained in space, but you know, and vice versa, if it happens in cyber, how do we think about it in space? Certainly very interesting. Uh, I would say the one last one last thing of note is that uh, all of these things in the strategy are important, but it, it really comes down to how we execute it. And I, again, I think that the the way we think about how this country invests money, which NASA has gotten a bigger budget, good. Uh, same with uh, some of the DOD money, some things there that we weren't really expecting initially. Uh, but how do we execute it? How do we reprioritize and how do we reorganize uh, for this next generation of space activities? I think that's an important question.
0: All right. Well, we'll now uh, you know, switch it back over to Susanna and our guest.
1: Yeah, we're uh, going to be talking to Lacey Raymond and Laura Jr. about military readiness. Hi, this is Susanna Bloom, and I'm here today to talk about readiness with Laura Jr., who is currently the Director of Research and Strategic Support at the National Defense University, formerly the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and Lacey Raymond who is a specialist master in the defense security and justice sector at Deloitte, but who formerly worked with me on readiness issues for the deputy secretary of defense, Bob Work. Thank you guys for coming today. Thank Thank you for for having us. Uh, So we're here to talk about readiness. Readiness is something that has been discussed extensively over the past many years by the service chiefs and their posture statements. Secretary Mattis, when he came in, uh, placed a very high priority on readiness but it's one of those words that doesn't really have a great or particularly clear kind of definition. And so my first question for you is what do we mean when we talk about readiness, military readiness, what is it?
4: Yeah, so the reason why there are so many seemingly conflicting definitions of readiness is that it looks different from different perspectives within the department. At the, I think at the final point, it's really the ability to produce or generate and sustain Forces to suit operational needs. But in order to do that, we have to create uh, production pipelines, to borrow uh, economics phrasing, that produce the people and the equipment and the supplies and the training necessary to generate those forces. So if you're back in one of those pipelines, say at a depot, readiness to you looks like the depot's ability to fix airplanes on time. So this is why we have these seemingly conflicting and confusing perceptions of readiness.
5: And I'll say, you know, unfortunately, uh, we are in recovery mode for readiness and uh, we've been focusing on one sort of mission set for Almost two decades now, and unfortunately, we've had pipelines that are oriented towards a parochial mission set. And our new strategy calls for a broader range of missions for which we need to be prepared for.
1: Yeah, so you're talking about um, training that's very much focused on counterinsurgency, that's counterterrorism right. kinds of missions. That's right. Whereas the new strategy yeah. emphasizes strategic competition with Russia, Russia and China. That's right. So it's a very different training. Right,
5: exactly. And you have, you know, O5s who maybe for the first time have gone through a large scale decisive action training event where they've been focused for their whole careers on. Train advice to assist, you know, sort of decentralized operations in sort of one part of the world, and so that that requires a huge paradigm shift, and one where the biggest budget for one year is really not going to yield huge readiness recovery that the department and our country, frankly, needs.
4: Right, and this is one. So this is part of why it's so difficult sometimes to to talk coherently about readiness because it, readiness isn't static. Ready for what? Turns out it matters, and. Lacey just described very um, adeptly uh, the current readiness for what issues, readiness for coin versus readiness for a peer competitor, require very different pipelines, very different skill sets, very different um, technologies. Uh, ready for ready when also is an important dimension of readiness. Um, it, it's, it's frustrating to hear in um, news reports, critics decrying the department's need to have all units ready for all things all the time. That's, that's just impossible. There's no one in the department that would advocate such a thing. However, um, we do need to figure out how to determine how much readiness for what and when. And, and that's one of the, the, the difficult parts of managing current readiness.
1: So to dig a little bit deeper into that, when when the service chiefs, for example, talk about readiness challenges, what do they mean? Like, what are some of the underlying causes of those readiness challenges, and how do they manifest?
4: Lacey, you worked on this last, so I'll let you go first.
1: I
5: did. Um, So we did a very fun six-day readiness review, actually, um, when uh, President Trump uh, came over just to kind of get the sense of how bad is it and where do we need to dedicate resources and starting to recover and rebuild military readiness. And we, we really found that, again, you, you couldn't have a budget big enough to help the deficit. And I think there's there's two issues. One, if you throw money at a problem, there's there's only so much that the operation and maintenance accounts could actually absorb. You have fixed throughput capacity at training centers and maintenance centers. And then, you, again, you have the issue of, we are training for a broader range of military conflicts and that takes time to really re-season the force to be full-spectrum ready.
4: Right, so if so, one of the problems um, is the ability, say, to, to turn uh, brigade combat teams in the Army from being trained and ready for COIN or SFA-type missions in Iraq and Afghanistan um, to do something with a competitor, say, in um, a different part of the world. And that, that different training can only happen on two places, live training can only happen on two places on the planet. And there is a, a queue or a line, you can only get so many BCTs through. So either you wait till you can get them all through and hope the world just stops till you're done, or we're gonna have to step back and reimagine how we train. There was recently um, a really interesting interview with Bob Scales and he was advocating Top Gun for Infantry. And can you tell us who he is? Bob Scales, retired Major General Bob Scales, who has been... um, a real advocate for um, training reform and education reform, and I'm probably not doing him justice, but he, he hes a very impressive guy, and very much—he's both a futurist and a historian, which—which which is fascinating. But it, what, this is a good example, though, of being creative to figure out how to to get out of a readiness conundrum like this. You either, you know, line up money and line up time, and hope the world stands still, or you completely reimagine training. And what he was thinking is bring, completely rethink how you select your your, your junior to mid-grade infantry leaderships, maybe from the upper mental group rather than the not upper mental group, um, and train, do their approach to training completely different. Create it as a professional force, not unskilled labor, and use live virtual and constructive training and that way, your training is not uniquely done in two places on the planet. So th- this is a really good example of uh, readiness isn't one thing. It's a complete process. And if something goes wrong with the process, you have two choices. You either wait till that bubble attrites through the process, which puts you in a watchful waiting scenario. And it's no more fun for readiness managers than it is you know, in any other walk of life or you get clever and you try to figure a way around it. So that's why it's kind of concerning more resources. We love it when the services are able to credibly convince resource owners like The Hill that there's a readiness problem, but then what you do with it, how you mitigate those problems matters. You don't wanna throw good money after bad. But at the same time, we do need to start thinking more creatively.
5: I think the military services, too, rightfully so, they kind of talk about having a balanced and capable force um, through, you know, kind of readiness. How do you ready the force you have now and strength and modernization? And the idea of that's an imbalance that's going to create kind of a corrosive and unready force in the future. And so that accounts for a temporal look at readiness, so readiness for today and tomorrow. And when you have um, bad budget deals and you have untimely budget appropriations, you're inevitably going to keep that imbalance sustained and, and only really exacerbate the issues there with. If you have a lot of people and you can't train them, that's a problem. but if you have people who are highly trained on equipment that can't remain mission capable, that's that's a huge challenge.
1: Yeah, so to like look at a concrete example, right we can talk about the ship collisions that happened in 2017, the two ship collisions in the Pacific. And the report that the Navy released, the investigation report that the Navy released talked about things like inadequate training, crew fatigue, and stuff like that. And I wonder if we can just discuss kind of that specific example a little bit and what the different um, readiness challenges you see that are kind of like manifest in that example.
4: Yeah, so the, the Navy has been in a, had a material condition, a very serious material condition issue with their ships and, frankly, with their aircraft as well for a number of years. Um, the thing to note from a readiness management perspective, these didn't just spontaneously happen these problems didn't, we didn't wake up one day and they suddenly appeared. There were signs and signals. In fact, um, there's some evidence to suggest that they were, at least in part, the product of the last time military budgets fell in the 90s, um, it, they were the product of money-saving ideas to, to uh, economize on maintenance. And these were ideas that didn't work out well, so that um, it, circa 2008 to 10 range, the Navy decided, well, we, we, we are in a maintenance, we have a maintenance backlog that's pretty serious, Um, We're missing deployments. I remember amphibs at that time had holes in them. So the problem is, again, you have single points of failure. There's only so many places on the planet where you can mitigate these problems. Plus, the the, the ships can't be deployed while you fix these problems. So we're in a no-win situation where you've just got this queuing problem for maintenance. So yes, it's a money problem. But it's also, unless we reimagine how we approach this problem, you just have to wait it out.
5: And I think that uh, rightly hits on the fact that when you have ships that are taking longer to go through maintenance because of throughput issues and because, quite frankly, the ships have such bad corrosion issues that they're taking longer to go through maintenance. That's inevitably going to cut into the training cycle. And so when you start yeah. truncating your training cycle before you deploy,
4: you're, you're cutting cycle.
5: corners and that's going to come in and it's going to bite you back real hard. And so
4: now you've got a training problem right. on top of your
5: that's right. material, material problem. You know, how the department looks at readiness, you know, when you measure the output of manning, training, equipping levels, that's an indication of how healthy your pipelines are. Yeah. And that takes years to, to both screw up. And to also recover once you have a problem that's really manifested itself operationally. So
4: in summary, unless you're monitoring those pipelines um, religiously, then you're going to have surprises like these. But conversely, if you do manage them, if you do keep an eye on these, these pipelines, that is in effect your best forecast for readiness in the next period.
1: Great. Well, I want to thank you both very much for joining us today. Laura Jr., Lacey Raymond for this conversation about readiness. I'm Susanna Bloom, and this was Full Metal Podcast.